Over the last few weeks, we have been spending our Sunday mornings in the New Testament book of Acts. We're focusing in on the Apostle Paul arriving at the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, and we will tell you a little more about Ephesus when we get there. But we're beginning Acts 19 at verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I suspect that for most of us, at some point in our life, we have had heroes. And for some of you, if you were a football fan, perhaps it's a well-known linebacker or a quarterback, or maybe you really had a coach that you looked up to, and that coach was your hero. For others of us, our hero may be a tennis player who won the U.S. Open Tennis Championship. For others, it might be music. We have a favorite artist or composer. I've had a hero for the last 25 years, a man whose name is Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson died this past Tuesday. He was in his mid-80s. He'd written over 30 books. He wrote the contemporary version of the Bible called The Message that was very popular 15, 20 years ago. Familiar with The Message? Let me see. Yeah, most folks are. It was a very warm, engaging, pastoral uh, interpretation of the Scriptures. He did a wonderful job on it. He was pastor, poet, writer, and a professor. And he taught spiritual theology at Vancouver uh, in Canada, at Regent's College there. And he truly was extraordinary. And in one of his books, he talks about having lunch with his grandchild. His name was Hans. Hans was six and a half, learning to read. And on that Saturday, they had a busy program laid out. Around 10.30, 11, Hans was to meet with the other wee ones in his church and sit down with the pastor, and the pastor was going to explain to them the meaning and significance of communion. Well, when I read that, I thought, well done, that's a courageous pastor. Uh, and so I was immediately drawn into the story. 
And the pastor very wisely gave to each of the children a children's Bible. And he explained what the scriptures were. And he talked about communion. It was coming up in a couple of weeks. And after the brief class, Grandma was with young Hans. They were going to meet Grandad in the park for lunch. And when they sat down and had lunch together, they unpacked sandwiches and cake and juice. And they had a wonderful picnic. Grandparents and six and a half year old Hans. And at one point in the conversation, Hans turned to his grandparents and he said, please excuse me. And that was a little odd for Hans just to be that formal and polite. And they said, yes, of course. And so Hans turned from his grandparents, put his hand into his backpack, lifted out his new Bible, turned further away from his grandparents and began to read. The difficulty was this. At six and a half, Hans couldn't read. He could recognize odd words here and there, but he wasn't quite at the stage of reading well. But what Eugene Peterson goes on to say is this. He says, of course, as grandparents, we were delighted to see Hans reaching into his bag, picking out his Bible, trying to read. He said, but that became for me a parable. And a parable in this sense, that at six and a half, he knew that the scriptures had to be respected and honored and held in a special place. But Peterson goes on to say this, that sometimes, even in Christian circles, we end up treating the Scriptures in a way that is less than personal. We're almost at times like spiritual tourists. We approach the Scriptures, they're on a pedestal, a place of honor, and with mild interest, we will have a look and read and try and engage our minds. Do we find it interesting? Of course. Do we find it engaging? Absolutely. But Peterson makes this point. Here was young Hans at six and a half, had fulfilled his duty of reading, and in his mind, it was over. The Bible wasn't related to the lunch they'd just had. It wasn't related to the park they were sitting in. It had no bearing on the museum later that day. But on Sunday mornings, when we open up the Scripture. We don't come as spiritual tourists seeking information. We come as Christian disciples looking for transformation. And that principle is found here in Acts 19 as Paul engages with the church at Ephesus. And he goes to great length to highlight for them in those very early days the centrality and supremacy of the Word of God in the life of the Christian. Now let's have a look at Acts 19 and begin our study. What do we discover? Verse 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Ephesus was a busy, vibrant, growing city. And when Paul arrives, he begins to obviously look for accommodation, find out where he could stay, tries to get to know the local folks, and he meets 
disciples of John the Baptist. And you can imagine Paul in that conversation beginning to hear that here were religious people, and when he first meets them, he says, my name is Paul, I come from city of Tarsus, and then he begins to explain who he is, and they explain who they are. And as he goes a little deeper, and he takes them to that place of spiritual engagement where you could hear a pin drop, Paul is saying to them, now tell me a little about your faith. What would they say? How would they respond? And they say, well, we were disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul says, yes, I've heard of John. Where did you first meet John? What was he like? Begins to talk. And then he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And what does the passage tells us? I'm looking at verse 3. So Paul then said, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in one coming after him. That is Jesus. And he begins to share the gospel with them. And he begins to tell them that John was pointing forward to the ministry, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Paul is explaining to them the Holy Spirit. And it's helpful for us to know this, that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would anoint an individual or a people, sometimes for a season, sometimes for a particular project. I'm thinking particularly, at least in my own mind, of King Saul, whom the Spirit of God anointed as he became Israel's first king. But when you come to the Gospels, Jesus is teaching the Gospels, impacting lives. Lives are being transformed. His death and resurrection is here. But when you come to the book of Acts, Pentecost, bursts on the scene, and Pentecost is, for all intents and purposes, a game-changer. And it's a game-changer for this reason. And in my mind, a game-changer is when something happens on the field in the middle of a game of football that is so important, it impacts everyone playing, and it changes the outcome of the game. Is that a reasonable definition of a game-changer? That was Pentecost. Pentecost, for the first time, meant this, that the power of God was let loose in the world, and it not only called people into a relationship with God, but it transformed the heart, the mind, the soul, and it equipped them to live out their faith. Because remember, during the Gospels, even the disciples, even the original apostles, those who knew Jesus best, had an intellectual or an emotional awareness of his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. But from Pentecost on, the Holy Spirit in all his power 
was living and indwelling in the heart and soul of individual Christians. And from that point on, Christians were then able to say, I no longer live my life in my own strength, trying to do it all on my own, but I live out my faith through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what they discovered was this, that suddenly they had an appetite for the things of God that prayer was meaningful. The scriptures were making sense. At last they could understand it because the Spirit of God had swooped them up, held them close, and brought them to a place of unique, unparalleled intimacy with God. He became at that point known as Abba Father. And they understood for the first time his overwhelming love and grace. That's why Paul says to the folks in Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because when the Holy Spirit calls a person and draws that person, not only does he forgive us, not only does he cleanse us from our sins, but he takes us to that place of undiluted intimacy with God. Over the summer, uh, back in July, I had the enormous privilege of meeting the Senate chaplain, whose name is Barry Black. And when you talk with the Senate chaplain, one of the questions I asked him was, what are the things most memorable? And he said, well, Richard, I have, for all intents and purposes, I have a front row seat on the unfolding of history in our nation. And he said, it's an enormous privilege. And I said to him, well, who are the people that you meet the most that really has an impact on you? And he said, well, let me answer it a slightly different way. He said, if I really, really, really wanted five minutes with the president, if I wrote to him eight months in advance, he might say, well, okay, given you're the Senate chaplain, fine, we'll schedule five minutes uh, for you. And he said, I know I have that opportunity, an enormous privilege to meet with any president. He said, but each time I think about the people I meet and pray with, whom everyone will know, he said, I'm also reminded of this, in a heartbeat, I can find myself in the presence of the living God. And that is so much more important than senators and congressmen and presidents or some of the people who are in D.C. That's what Paul was establishing at Ephesus. That we find ourselves in the presence of the living God. And as you grow and mature in your faith, what comes next? What you find is this, that when you sit down and reflect on His love and grace to you, and you find yourself in that place of deep, abiding, intimate prayer, 
Not only does prayer become important, not only is worship a priority, not only is spending time in the Scriptures, getting to know God and going deeper in your faith, what you also discover is this, that the things that once were important, things that defined your life, no longer have that importance. Because when you submit and surrender every aspect of your being, to the rule and reign of Christ, life becomes so much greater and so much sweeter. That's what it means to be growing in your faith, going deeper. And along with that comes an appreciation of a radical, ruthless dislike for sin and all it stands for. Because you can no longer live the way you once lived. Because he's too precious to you. You no longer want to displease him or step outside his will. All of that Paul was establishing here in Ephesus. Now notice what comes next. After laying hands on praying for the folks in Ephesus, what happened was their very own Pentecost. The Holy Spirit breaks into their lives, transforms them. They spoke in tongues just as they did in Pentecost. So you have a micro-Pentecost going on here. And Paul says there were, or Luke rather records, there were about 12 men in all. And then in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. In other words, maligned the Christian faith. So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And, they went on for, and this went on for two years so that all the Jews, Greeks, who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, let me pause right there. Why is Luke recording that? Of all the things Luke could have recorded about the infant church in Ephesus, he records that for two years, Paul lectured every day presenting the gospel. People, of course, were responding to it, coming to faith. Lives were transformed. Some realized for the first time that hope and meaning and purpose in life was wrapped up in the gospel. Others moved from the belief that they were nothing and would never amount to anything to hope a new life in Christ. All of that was going on. But Luke goes to great length to highlight for us what? The supremacy and centrality of the Scriptures. Here was Paul day after day teaching the Scriptures. He was establishing the church. He was leaving them with the tools to live out their faith. And he was teaching them the things that are important in the Christian life. And this morning we are doing the same. Over the last several years, we have been unrolling our strategic plan for the next phase of life and ministry here at First Pres. And as part and parcel of that strategic plan, 
we intentionally as a congregation, whether it's here in the sanctuary or down in fellowship hall or Wednesday night youth groups or small Bible study groups across the community in the course of the week, we intentionally go about being a church that provides a secure spiritual home. And each time we have an event, a class, a meeting of any kind, we want people to feel at home. This is a place where they belong. It is a place for them. It is a safe, warm, secure environment, a secure spiritual home. It's a place where they're welcomed. Secondly, in each of our ministries, we want our ministries to be life-giving and life-affirming. And by that, I mean this. That once folks get to know you here at First Pres, they are going to pray for you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to get alongside you and support you. If you are in your mid-40s and have lost a parent, they're going to be there and pray with you and encourage you and look after you and ask how you're doing. They're going to enter into relationships that are meaningful, lasting, supporting, warm. That's what we mean when we talk about life-giving, life-affirming, being there for each other. Thirdly, we're always going to be seeking to grow and mature in our faith. That's why on a Sunday morning, we open up the Scriptures. We take our faith seriously. We engage with the presence of Almighty God when we meet, whether it be for 10 minutes in prayer, whether it be Sunday morning when we open up and study God's Word together. It's a secure spiritual home. It's not just a secure place, secure spiritual home where we grow and mature and we engage with the living God, and we do so intentionally. Fourthly, we stand for Christian values and standards. We don't believe that we simply read this book and then go home. We read it and then apply it. And sometimes when we apply Christian teaching to values and standards, that can be controversial. That can be sensitive. That can be a difficult Sunday morning when we're dealing with something that not everyone agrees with us on. But we're going to do that. And we're going to do it, not every Sunday, thankfully, but when it comes up in a passage of Scripture, something has happened on the news, we're going to address it. And we're going to talk of moral values and spiritual standards. We're going to do that. Because as Christian people, we have to deal with the issues that society brings our way. And hopefully, we'll do it graciously. Earlier, about six months before, we touched on abortion. That Sunday, we touched on suicide. And I intentionally spent a Sunday morning looking at suicide because six or seven of our families had been impacted by suicide in the previous 18 months or several years. And we'll do that. It's not easy. It's not something I look forward to. I'm sure it's not something you look forward to. But from time to time, we will deal with the hard issues because we believe Christian values and standards matter and we believe in living out our faith. Do we want to impact the culture, the city and beyond? Yes, we do. 
And simply for this reason, that we believe the gospel is transformative. We believe it shapes the heart and mind and soul. We believe it gives us intimacy with the living God. It allows us to have access to Him, as I said earlier. And we want to share that with people in need, in and around our city, our own community, our nation. We believe that's important. And we're always going to stand firm on the supremacy and centrality of the Word of God. I mentioned it earlier that Scripture is not something to be casually looked at as mildly interesting as a spiritual tourist, but as to impact and fashion and shape the heart, the mind, the soul. And when we step forward this morning, that's what we are saying. We are saying these things are to us self-evident. That defines who we are. It's not everything we are, but it certainly touches on many of the major issues for us as a church. And in coming forward this morning, you are saying, I want to be part of a church like that. So let me pray with you, and then we'll close our service by singing together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that we have learned this morning. Father, help us never to take for granted the wonder and love and impact and presence of your Holy Spirit upon our lives. Help us to hold on to the centrality and supremacy of the Word of God. May it shape us and fashion us and prepare us for all the days that lie ahead. And Father, this morning, as each one of us steps forward in this moment of commitment, we do so gladly, willingly, with generous hearts and minds to support all that you have called us to. Father, hear our prayers, for we ask them in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.